Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Killer Astrology, the podcast with your host, Laura. I've had a handful of new listeners from Australia, which my SAG Venus loves. So as a thank you to you all for joining me, I'm covering the case of an Australian killer this week. Today, we'll be talking about Leonard Fraser. And I have to tell you, this is the first killer I've covered so far who has really seriously given me the creeps. I'm generally pretty open-minded about people, and I can find at least one redeeming quality about anybody. And if I can't do that, I can at least find something entertaining. Like with Ted Bundy, for example, who's a total psychopath but managed to escape from jail twice, which, let's be honest, is max-level interesting. But with this guy, I'm just at a complete loss. I think Leonard Frazier is 100% vile, but let's get started and you can form your own opinion. Leonard Fraser was born in Ingham, which is a small town in northern Queensland, Australia. He was the second youngest child born to his parents, George and Agnes Fraser. His father was an army veteran who had fought in World War II and then come back to Australia to work as a machinist or a mechanic, and his mother stayed home with the children. I had trouble finding anything significant about his home life, aside from one article from ABC Radio Brisbane that mentions a troubling childhood. I would have really liked to hear some more details about his home life, because the counselor in me knows that most people aren't born antisocial. They're made that way by trauma. One potential trauma may have occurred for Leonard while he was in school. Like Ted Bundy, he had a speech impediment growing up, and I imagine that in the early 1950s, kids weren't exactly kind about this difference, especially not boys who were taught to be tough and assert their dominance around their friends. On top of potentially having difficulties with his classmates, it's been said that Leonard was, quote, of below average intelligence, which I find really interesting. I want to know exactly what Leonard's IQ was, but I can't find that information if it even exists now. But I do think that this is critical to understanding his criminal tendencies. It's important to know that he struggled in school, and it's likely that he didn't take in a lot of the material he was learning. In the early 1950s, he probably didn't get the support he needed to do better, and people may have thought that he was slacking off as opposed to having difficulty learning. If this was the case, his family and his teachers may have gotten mad at him and even punished him for not being able to do something that he didn't have the tools to accomplish. And that definitely takes a toll on somebody who's made to think that the way they are isn't good enough. Unsurprisingly, Leonard wound up dropping out of school at 14 and going to work instead. But that didn't last long because he was caught stealing a piece of equipment from a parked car and was sentenced to time in a boy's prison. That prison was the Gosford Boys' Home in New South Wales, and Leonard learned a lot of his criminal behavior from his fellow inmates there. In an episode of Crime Investigation Australia, reporter Paula Donovan says that in prison, the boys learned to take what they wanted, and for Leonard and many of the other boys there, that applied to sex. Leonard was raped by the other boys, and in turn, he likely raped younger boys, and that's where he learned to be a predator. But in addition to learning that he was essentially entitled to have sex with whoever he wanted, Leonard had a very bad temper, and both of those things got him into trouble later on. Leonard was released from the boys' prison in 1968, 
which makes the two and a half years he served there his longest served sentence for his least severe crime between 1966 and 1974. In the five years following his release, Leonard was charged with multiple violent crimes. In December of 1968, Leonard was charged with assaulting a railway guard, which is like a conductor in the U.S. Apparently, the guard had said something to or about his girlfriend at the time, and Leonard got protective and violent and angry. Needless to say, nothing ever came of his relationship with that girlfriend, because he went back to prison for that charge. Then he got out, and then he got in trouble again for street fighting and driving without a license. Then, in 1971, Leonard stole a car and was sentenced to 20 months in jail. But he only served about half of that sentence, even with his record, and then was released in October of 1972. He wasn't out of jail for more than a matter of days before his crimes escalated. On October 17, 1972, Leonard was living with a roommate and they got in a fight. So Leonard went to the Botanical Gardens in Sydney to let off some steam, and it was there that he carried out a completely random attack on a French tourist who he raped and beat so badly that she could no longer conceive children. Although this attack was in the middle of a public area, there were no witnesses and Leonard got away with it. But that doesn't mean he stayed a free man for long because he couldn't control himself, as we know. And he was actually put back in jail for a series of other crimes, both violent and nonviolent, but which included armed robbery and living off prostitution wages. I'm not exactly sure what he did to receive that second charge, but to me it sounds like he was some kind of pimp, and that means that he probably committed dozens of other crimes against women that were not documented. For this latest series of crimes, Leonard was sentenced to five years in jail, but he only served a year and a half of that sentence, which is still less than what he served as a minor for stealing, and then he was out wreaking havoc on the streets again. In 1974, Leonard was attacking women every chance he got. But thankfully, he wasn't always successful, and on one of his failed attempts, he made the critical mistake of dropping his wallet. This led police right to him, and in the course of his questioning and his trial, he wound up confessing to raping that French tourist a couple years earlier. For all of his completed and attempted sexual crimes, Fraser is sentenced to 21 years in jail, and for reasons I cannot understand, he only served seven years of that time. He's released from prison again in 1981, and then almost immediately is charged with aggravated assault again, and even though he's on parole, he only spends two months in jail. And then he's released again and lives with his parents in Hayes Point, another coastal town in Queensland. Now, from this point on, it appears on the outside as though Leonard is getting his life together. He gets a real job, and how he manages to do that with his record, I, I honestly have no clue. But he works as a laborer near where he's living. And not only does he get a job, but he gets a new girlfriend, Pearl Rigby, with whom he has a daughter in the early 1980s. The two stay together for three years in the apartment they were able to rent together, but as we know about Leonard Fraser, he has zero self-control and goes on to sabotage himself and his family by stalking and assaulting a woman on a beach near his home. The woman goes to the police, and finally, Leonard is charged and sentenced and serves his entire sentence, 12 years in jail, 
not a second less. The prison that Leonard goes to is in Rockhampton, Queensland, where his fellow prisoners begin calling him Lenny the Loon. Now, this is the kind of thing that I imagine happened to him when he was in grade school, getting nicknames and being taunted because he was different. Honestly, I can't say that I feel bad for him whatsoever. He was different, and he was different in the worst way. He served his whole 12-year sentence and then, of course, was released into the Rockhampton area. And what do you think he learned from his time away? Nothing. He learned nothing. In 1977, Leonard moved to a town called Yipun, which is relatively close to Mackay, where he wound up living with Pearl Rigby, and where he assaulted his last victim on the beach. It seems that Leonard was really skilled at finding very vulnerable women, getting close to them, and then taking full advantage of them. In January of 1997, Leonard moved in with a woman named Marie, who was suffering from a deadly cancer. He met her while she was his pen pal when he was in jail. I don't know what their relationship was like when they were living together, whether it was hostile or relatively calm. It's hard to believe that any relationship of Leonard's could have been calm, but if he was in the process of manipulating someone, I imagine he could have put on a good face at least for a little while. But whatever the status of their relationship, it changed a few months after Leonard moved in, because Marie's condition worsened, and she needed to travel to Brisbane for treatment. And Leonard went to see her there. Now, if Leonard had been a normal person wanting to accompany his friend to the hospital, he probably would have just said that he wanted to go, and tagged along. But because there was nothing normal about Leonard, he followed her there instead, hitchhiking his way south until he got to the hospital, where he learned that Marie would not survive. After he learned this information, Leonard took Marie to the hospital chapel, locked the door behind them, and then raped her. After this heinous event, Leonard really started to lose control of himself. He moved to Mount Morgan, a town near Rockhampton, and right away made a bad impression on police when he asked them, quote, what are the women like in this place? End quote. Now, the cops went back to the station and checked Leonard's record, and they saw his long history of violence. But because he hadn't committed any crimes in their jurisdiction yet, they couldn't do anything about him. That said, it wasn't long before Leonard's behavior started to get the townspeople in Mount Morgan really angry. In that episode of Crime Investigation Australia I mentioned before, a former police officer stated that Leonard was, quote, literally run out of town, end quote, for drugging a woman at a local bar and attempting to take her home. It wasn't until Leonard left town that the police realized the extent of what he was doing, threatening women with knives, raping them, and then telling them their families would be hurt by a biker gang if they ever went to the police. Toward the end of 1998, Leonard is living in Rockhampton with a woman named Christine Raitt, who has an intellectual disability. One day, Leonard takes Christine on an afternoon drive towards a secluded area at the end of a dirt road. Once there, he gets out of the car and retrieves a large object from the trunk, which he carries out into the brush. Police later discover that this object was actually a decoy that Leonard used to fake the disposal of a body to throw the cops off his trail. Because it turns out that on the same day he took that drive with Christine, he did have a body to dispose of, though somewhere else. It was the body of nine-year-old Kira Steinhardt, who he kidnapped on her way home from school, 
though unknowingly in front of two witnesses who called the police to report what they had seen. When police heard the description of Kira's attacker, they knew immediately that it was Leonard. They went to his house that night and asked him to come back to the station. He agreed, but initially denied all involvement in Kira's disappearance. When he heard that witnesses had given a description of his vehicle, he said that he had actually lent his car to someone else, someone named Squeaky, who he would later say was his alter ego, who forced him to commit terrible crimes. He couldn't convince the cops that he wasn't involved, though, and he was soon arrested for kidnapping. Police formed a search party to find Kira, but after a few days of searching, they were still empty-handed. Finally, Leonard gave in and told the police where her body was. It turns out he didn't even try to bury her. He just laid her body against a tree in a dried-up creek and covered it with grass. He read a lot of true crime books, and he thought that nature would destroy Kira's DNA, which may be why he left her uncovered. But police gathered so much evidence in this case, including hair and blood from his car, for a total of 340 forensic specimens. When Leonard realized he was totally screwed, he said that he blacked out and couldn't remember committing the crime. But this statement didn't fool police, or the judge, or the jury in this case, and Leonard was sentenced to life in prison for the kidnapping and murder of Kira Steinhardt. While the trial for Kira's murder and kidnapping was underway, Leonard met up with a man that he had known from a previous incarceration, Alan Quinn. Leonard confided in Quinn, who actually wound up helping the police while they were gathering information for the Kira trial, and also while they were questioning Leonard's involvement in a few other disappearances in the area. Sometime during or shortly after his first trial, Leonard learned that Quinn was acting as an informant. And he was mad for a while, but surprisingly forgave him, and maybe even forgot about the betrayal. Sometime after the end of the trial, Leonard wound up in prison with Alan again. At this point, police suspected that Leonard was involved in four disappearances of women in the Rockhampton area. Alan began working with the police again, agreeing to wear a wire and to tap his jail cell. Then, he told Leonard that he wanted to learn more about his crimes so that he could write a biography of his criminal life. And Leonard believed this. Under the pretense of helping Alan create this book, Leonard provided him with information about more of his crimes, helping police piece together the events leading to other disappearances. The death of Julie Turner, who disappeared in December of 1998, the death of Beverly Lego, who disappeared in March of 1999, the death of Sylvia Benedetti, who disappeared in April of 1999, and the death of Natasha Ryan, who disappeared in August of 1998. Leonard wound up confessing to Alan about these cases. He said that he killed Julie Turner when he made a pass at her and she rejected him. He said he didn't mean to kill her and did so accidentally, but then had to dispose of her body. He recounted a similar situation with the other women as well, but Sylvia Benedetti perhaps met the most gruesome fate. He said that he lured Sylvia to a hotel room in 1999, where he made a sexual advance and then she hit him in rejection. To retaliate, he then beat her to death. And it turned out that in April of that year, police were tipped off to a crime scene found in a dilapidated hotel that was being torn down. 
There, they found loads of evidence, including facial bones and blood spatter on the 13-foot ceilings. After he divulged this information, police asked Leonard to show them where the women were buried, and he agreed. He led police to the bodies of Julie Turner, Beverly Lego, and Sylvia Benedetti, but never admitted to raping any of the women, even though there was strong evidence to the contrary. Although he confessed to the murder of Natasha Ryan as well, he couldn't lead police to her body. He drew a map that showed her remains in two separate locations, but police found nothing in those areas. Even so, they still tried him for her death in addition to the others. During his trial, Leonard tried to relinquish all of his responsibility for the crimes by referring back to his alter ego, Squeaky, and claiming that this character made him commit the murders. But Leonard had already provided too much incriminating information that worked against him, and this plan didn't work. On May 9, 2003, Leonard was found guilty of some of his crimes, but not all. It turns out that in the middle of Leonard's trial, Natasha Ryan was found alive. She had been hiding in her boyfriend's residence for the past five years and claimed never to have met Leonard. Prosecutors feared that this new and surprising information would jeopardize their conviction. So the court took a recess for four days, but ultimately resumed, and at that time Leonard was found guilty of Sylvia Benedetti's murder, Beverly Lego's murder, and manslaughter in the case of Julie Turner. Throughout the trial, Leonard had vacillated between appearing hostile and very disinterested. Whenever Alan Quinn, his informant, took the stand, he got angry and aggressive. But at other times, he seemed not to care what was going on. Even when his sentence was declared, Leonard was seen laying back in his chair, putting his head in his hands, and yawning. This was all while the judge was announcing multiple life sentences for him and calling him an untreatable psychopath. On January 1st, 2007, just four years into his sentence, Leonard died of a heart attack in his sleep, giving this terrible story a rather tame ending. It was hard for me to comprehend just how Leonard became this horrible monster. So I turned to astrology for some clues. Let's go there now. Leonard Fraser was born on June 27, 1951, in Ingham, Queensland, giving him a Cancer Sun and an Aries Moon. No matter what time he was born, his Aries Moon is in conjunction with Jupiter at somewhere between a 4-degree and a 9-degree orb. Do you remember what I discussed last episode about the correlation between Ted Bundy's, John Haig's, and Ed Gein's moon placements? They all had moons in the second decan of Sagittarius, and while it doesn't appear as such on the surface, Leonard's moon placement is actually very eerily similar. Last episode, I explained that the moon in the second decan of Sagittarius expresses itself with the influence of Jupiter and the influence of Mars. For Leonard, the same energies are at play, only the Jupiter energy comes from that conjunction between the Moon and Jupiter, and the Mars energy comes from both planets being in Aries, which is ruled by Mars. So again, we have the Moon, Jupiter, and Mars all working together to create a killer. 
There seriously are no coincidences here, and this is why I love astrology. Sometimes you have to read between the lines, but at the end you'll find the same message. Moving on, Leonard had a cancer son, which is a pretty emotional placement. But as was demonstrated by his behaviors, we know that Leonard was also antisocial, meaning he didn't feel empathy. I think one explanation for this is that Uranus was in conjunction with Leonard's cancer son, and Uranus is a very detached, unemotional planet. But as I've mentioned before, we also have to look at nurture to understand people's personalities. I have an uncle who was born left-handed in the 1950s. And of all the things to find offensive, apparently society decided that it wasn't okay for him to be left-handed, and he was forced to write with his right hand all throughout school. And what happened to him? Well, he became a pathological liar. When you suppress people's inherent nature, bad things happen. And the inherent nature of a cancer son is emotional. But in the 1950s, the time of Pluto in Leo, men were supposed to be anything but emotional. Leonard's emotions were probably forced out of him one way or another, whether it was someone saying, stop crying, boys don't cry, or someone beating it out of him. Just like my uncle was forced to relinquish his left-handedness, Leonard was forced to relinquish his emotional nature. And so, he learned that who he was wasn't okay, and to shut his emotions off. And that backfired in a big way. Going back to Pluto in Leo, Leonard actually had Pluto in Leo very closely conjunct Venus. Venus represents women in astrology, and Pluto represents control. The mythology of Pluto can help us understand the planet's impact. Pluto's interpretation is actually tied to Hades, the god of the underworld in Greek mythology. Hades wasn't necessarily considered evil in ancient Greek culture, but he did take what he wanted without consent when it came to love. Hades fell in love with Persephone, the daughter of goddess Demeter and god Zeus. Hades approached Zeus and asked to marry his daughter without consulting anybody else, and Zeus agreed, also without consulting anybody else. Then, on one random day, Hades opened up the ground beneath Persephone as she was innocently picking flowers and she sunk down to the underworld where she became his wife. And of course, in ancient culture, becoming someone's wife was very much tied to having sex. There's a bit more to this myth that I know will concern us in the future, but it doesn't really concern us now. The main point is that we can think of Pluto in Leonard's chart as Hades, taking women, represented by Venus, against their will. The fact that both Pluto and Venus are in Leo, the sign of personal expression, indicates that Leonard's sexual practices were for him and him alone. The last astrological placement I'll mention today is the placement of Leonard's black moon Lilith. I've mentioned this point multiple times before, and I'll keep mentioning it because it keeps showing up in the same place. The Sagittarius-Gemini axis. Again, there are no coincidences. Leonard's Lilith is in 29 degrees of Gemini, a critical degree that magnifies a planet's impact. And this point is conjunct Mars in 24 degrees Gemini. This is a scary mix of destructive energy in this case. I've referred to Lilith before as the point of rebellion in a birth chart. And for some people, that's a good descriptor. 
Sometimes the rebellion is minor, like secretly wearing lingerie under your clothes or going commando or something like that. Other times, the rebellion is huge, murderous even. The story of Lilith actually comes from Jewish mythology, where she's feared. In some books of the Bible, she's actually referred to as a demon, and her hands are bound to contain her energy. Lilith represents completely unbridled sexuality, and with the right combination of elements in the birth chart, I believe she can fuel behavior like Leonard's. Her conjunction with Mars in Leonard's chart added a fierceness to her expression. On top of that, she was pushed to fully express her power in the 29th degree of her sign. The 29th degree is where planets get rushed to fulfill their mission, and as we all know, we're at a much higher risk of getting things wrong when we rush. Lilith being in Gemini, the unemotional and non-judgmental sign of the two-faced twins, let morality fall to the wayside in her pursuit. There's not a doubt in my mind that her placement was hugely influential in Leonard's transition into becoming a monster and expressing his desire without regard for others. The last thing I'll say about Leonard isn't astrology-related at all, but it needs to be said because the earthly influences that helped create him are present all over the world. Leonard was in and out of jail from the time he was a teenager, and his time there proved not to be rehabilitating, but instrumental in creating a person who had little regard for others' humanity. What he was initially jailed for wasn't even a violent crime, but he learned to be violent in jail, where he was taught how to commit increasingly violent crimes in the future. We need to find better ways to help people who break laws, so that we're not putting them in a situation where they learn to become more destructive and more self-serving. Supportive rehabilitation can provide so much more than punishment. There are a couple of different organizations working towards prison reform in the U.S., including the American Civil Liberties Union and the Justice Policy Institute. If you're interested in this cause, I'll include their websites in the episode description. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Killer Astrology. I'll be back next week with another episode about another troubled killer. Until then, remember, people may lie, but the stars never do. If you liked what you heard today, please share this podcast with your friends and consider leaving a five-star rating. You can follow the podcast on social media using the information in the episode description. Visit my website, killerastrologypodcast.com, for reference information for each episode and more.